Hello, everyone, and welcome to What's Wrong with the Podcast. Today, we are delighted to be talking to Zach Shefflin. Zach is helping people reimagine how they get around wherever they live, work, and play. As founder and CEO of Civilized Cycles, he's bringing to market next generation category redefining electric bikes. He has 20 years of experience in the scooter, motorcycle, bicycle, e bike, and electric motorcycle retail sales and services. Zach is a lifelong rider, mechanic, and the builder. He has also been a lifelong student of transportation. The son of anthropologists, Zach grew up all over the world and saw just about every way people figured out how to get around. A graduate of the NYU Stern School of Business, Zach is helping build the bike culture and the two wheel world. Zach, welcome. Hi, how are you today? Uh, great, and we're happy to have you. Uh, please tell us about yourself and your background and how Civilized Cycles came to life. So I grew up traveling around the world with my anthropologist parents, and um, I got to see a pretty wide spectrum of how people live and how people get around and do stuff. And um, I also grew up being one of those kids who loved everything with wheels and motors, and if you could crash it or catch on fire or something like that, I was into it. Um, and uh, I went to college. I um, was an art major. I couldn't really figure out what that was going to do for me. It was the heart of the recession. Dropped out of school, went to automotive repair school, so I knew at least I would have a job. So I got a degree as a car mechanic. Did that for a few years. Um, had a lot of fun playing rock and roll and living a young 20s lifestyle. Uh, and then went back to school actually for business uh, when I started to sort of see a little clearer what the future would look like and what kind of skills would actually be important to me to to have some effect on that world. And, you know, certainly when I was 20 years old, I had no idea what that was. But by the time I got into my mid-20s, I started to see that, you know, the really powerful forces in this world tend to be non-governmental and tend to be economic and uh, innovation. And um, so I went back to school, uh, to business school at NYU, and I went to the Stern School of Business because I really wanted to get an education that sort of gave me a framework on the, 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 you know, buttons and levers that, that move things in a big way. And, um, the business education was, was, uh, useful for that. Um, I went on to work in, uh, one of the early internet companies that was like a, a research company that mostly did, uh, very, very high end, like a subscription service for, for research to companies that were trying to figure out what the internet was doing. And so, I would interview like 25 year old people who had come in and they'd just been given like $25 million to build an internet company out of a, a very silly piece of technology. And I, we, get, we got a lot of that all day. And then uh, the towers fell and the internet bubble burst. And my wife and I were both out of our dot com jobs. And, um, oh my God, at the same time? Uh, at the same time, yep. Wow. Um, and, uh, we, we also realized, you know, we felt pretty vulnerable in New York that, you know, it was a kind of a difficult city to get around in and escape, especially in times of crisis. And so we went and bought a Vespa. We saw one on the street. We thought it was cool. We went to the Vespa dealership and uh, it was at the time it was a Lamborghini dealer. And, you know, we walk in and we tell the guy that we're looking for a Vespa. And of course, the salesman's face kind of falls. He pulls out a cigarette, puts his feet up on the desk and is like, OK, yeah, fine, whatever. And 
we bought the Vespa. We started riding it around and we realized it was sort of like the killer app for New York City because we could get anywhere diagonally cross town in 15 minutes. You could park it. You could put your stuff in it. You could carry two people. You could do your grocery shopping. It just sort of was like the solution. And we knew that the cigarette smoking feet on the desk salespeople were never, ever going to be committed to Vespa. So we kind of did the classic uh, entrepreneur's game of telling uh, Vespa that we had money lined up and telling investors that we had Vespa lined up. Um, and 2002, we we opened Vespa Soho. And um, Vespa Soho was, uh, you know, partially enabled by the real estate prices of the time. Um, for us, it really felt like a great way to say, screw you to the terrorists, because, you know, here we are in downtown Manhattan rebuilding. Um, right. And it was, it was a really fun business for a while because it was glamorous and sexy. And we had really interesting customers being down in Soho. We had all sorts of cool Hollywood celebrities and, and people who really made the city work. And that was all wonderful until about 2008. And by 2008, we were the biggest Vespa dealership in the country. Um, we were looking to expand. Um, and uh, we tried very hard to do so and found that uh, Vespa Corporate um, had signed up our buyer as a new dealer. And so that was... Oh. A, a moment of, of great challenge for us. And, uh, you know, then in 2008, when the financial crisis really hit, they did that again and put four new dealers in a circle around us, um, uh, within a, like a two-mile circle around us. So we knew that it was going to be really difficult. And right. so we created a new retail concept uh, called Carbon Negative. And the idea was to pull together everything that we could that was sort of green transportation and put it all under one roof. And so we added cargo bikes. We added Dutch-style cruisers. We added the very best e-bikes we could find at the time. We added the very first electric motorcycles. We tried a whole bunch of electric, like, Vespa-style scooters, but they were all garbage. So we didn't actually wind up carrying any. And we put these on our floor, and we proceeded to watch our customers play Goldilocks all day long. So they'd be like, oh, I love the two people and the effortlessness of the Vespa. I don't want any of that parking. I don't want any of that like license, registration, insurance, gas, oil. I can't bring it into my apartment. You know, it's too much. Yeah. And oh, I love this Dutch bike. The riding position is so comfortable, but it's so heavy and, you know, I can't really do anything with it. Oh, this cargo bike. Well, I can put my kids on it, but over 15 miles an hour, it's pretty awful. And anytime there's a hill, it's no good. And so, after kind of listening to all our customers, you know, pros and cons, and of course, at the same time, we are riding all of this stuff ourselves. Yeah. I really had the, the light bulb come on that I could build what everyone was asking for, which was a vehicle that did everything that a Vespa does, but in an e-bike platform. So mm -hmm. I realized that we could make it, you know, 150 pounds less. We could make it more comfortable. We could make it clean and efficient, and we could eliminate all that license registration and insurance stuff that is such a barrier to buying a gas-powered vehicle. And frankly, Vespa's were starting to become kind of, they haven't been redesigned in many, many years. They're, they're basically an obsolete product at this point. So we saw that this was a, a potential. We started uh, drawing up some designs. I hired a young designer from RISD to help me make it pretty. Mm -hmm. We started talking to customers about it and uh, realized very quickly that we shouldn't do that because customers very quickly said, oh, I'm not going to buy this Vespa that's in front of me. I'm going to wait for that. Oh. So, <laughs> so once that started happening, we were knew, we knew we were onto something, that we were onto a concept that would be very appealing to people. Um, you know, that if you look at the rest of the world, the light two-wheeled vehicle is one of the major transportation platforms that there is. Um, yeah. You know, you go to, to, to most foreign countries and there'll be a family or at least a couple and sometimes a kid, sometimes the shopping, um, sometimes more 
on a light motorcycle or scooter or some sort of low-powered, lightweight, two-wheeled vehicle that just make everyday life path quite a bit easier. And this is a transportation model that we've never really had in the United States. In large yeah. part, our laws here, well, there's really two reasons. One is, you know, other places have a little more density, which makes it easier for lighter, small uh, low-power vehicles. But the big one is actually a legal thing, which is that in this country, we have always treated all things with motors and wheels essentially as the same, whether they were super light and safe and easy for a normal person to operate, or whether they were a 800-pound, 1,500cc Harley-Davidson, which, you know, you probably need a, a lot of training to actually ride safely. Yeah. Um, so because of that, every Vespa I sold was supposed to have a motorcycle license, um, and even light vehicles, the same the same vehicles that are so popular everywhere else in the world, never really found a home here um, because there just never was a, a legal place for them. And the United States is a little bit different from the rest of the world as well in our legal structure. And we have a very generous e-bike law, which allows for a lot of power, a lot of speed, and so much so that it essentially can replace a kind of moped class vehicle that we um, has never been successful here and do it in a no license, no registration, anyone can ride it package. So mm. what, what we saw was, you know, how there's this incredible opportunity to create a, a new kind of platform, a new vehicle that anyone can ride in the U.S. cheaply, easily, with no barriers to purchase. And it's actually going to be a nicer experience than the gas-powered stuff because it's so much lighter. And that weight makes a very, very big difference for living with it every day. Yeah. And I love that your story of, like, user testing is actually by – through, like, having an actual dealership. Like, that's actually pretty yeah. – that is something that you don't come across often. Like, there's an R&D process you're doing, like – user testing, inviting people in, and then gathering feedback, but you actually, like, went through it live by having them compare other existing products out there to your design, so that is actually pretty amazing and, like, shows the validity of the product, too. Um, well, one of the things that, that I that I like, you know, is, is, is for us, it, it wasn't really a, a product creation process. More, It was much more of a careful listening process and a careful yeah. solution process, right? It was about paying attention to objections that people were giving, paying attention to the, the feature sets and attributes of each of these things that people really like. And, um, you know, I think I was fortunate that I had enough of a mechanical background to see what was possible and that we could do it. Um, and, uh, yeah, it was, it was very, very helpful to have our customers tell us what they want before we even knew what it was. So yeah. I, I would I would recommend to anyone else who's in a similar situation to just keep your ears and eyes open and listen for pain points because that's where the best new products are created. Well, that's like human-centered design 101, right? Like you actually engage your user base in the design process. Like that's what really happened. But it also <laughs> happened by just being like good listeners and hearing people out. Like naturally it happened. Like it wasn't, uh, you know, yeah. it wasn't an agenda that you had. But I think that's really cool. And those type of, I think, products and businesses will go a long way just because, you know, um, they, you're already in the market knowing what your user wants. So that's huge, yep. huge value. Um, yeah, if I could just follow up one small point on that for other people who are kind of thinking about how to do this. One of the things that surprised me the most when we were running a retail dealership was the extent to which manufacturers and vendors did not listen to the people who talked to customers. They just hmm. didn't talk to salespeople. And salespeople, you know, their job is to overcome objections, right? And so good salespeople are making a list of all the reasons people say no and what it is they really want. And, you know, so I would encourage designers, if you're curious, like, oh, how do I approach this? Go talk to people who sell things kind of like it and see what their pain points are. There'll be so much data there 
uh, and they will be very, very happy to talk to you because no one ever listens to them. So sad, but so true. Yes. Yeah. And, my wife was. My wife did sales for a while at at um, Saks Fifth Avenue. Yeah. And you know, one of the things that that was really obvious was that they were missing enormous amounts of sales because they didn't carry the sizes that their customers wanted. Wow. And they didn't have a mechanism in their company to track the fact that a woman walked out because they didn't have a size 12. There was no way to know the sales that were missed because they weren't carrying the right product other than talking to the salespeople. So the salespeople would, you know, please, you need to order sizes 10 and 12 and 8 because, you know, women are built this way and this is who are, who are walking in wanting to buy stuff. And the buyers would buy zeros and twos and sixes. And, you know, the salespeople would look like they were bad at their job. And that wasn't the case at all. Setting them up to failure. Exactly. So talk to salespeople. Salespeople are right there with what is going on with customers. And, and, you know, my big advantage is I was on the floor with salespeople and had to act as a salesperson as well. So I was in the thick of it. Uh, and that's yeah. our data. So. Yeah, I think that's one of the, like, best, like, entrepreneurial advantages, too, just to, like, be more, like, having to wear more hats just because, you know, you have to. And then, but then learning and uh, being able to observe closely if, you know, if you're doing it right. Um, exactly. So, please. So, do... long, long story oh, short, I thought the opportunity was way, way, way bigger with this e-bike that we designed than with the dealership. So, we sold off, um, sold that stuff off at the end of uh, 16 and have been full-time focused on this since then. Wonderful. So tell us, the uh, in addition to like all the things you mentioned, you know, compared to the existing products out there, tell us the importance of, I guess, commuting, first of all, with a bicycle, and second of all, in order to make it accessible and inclusive, you also ha have an e-bike, so it's like less physical effort, right? So what are the advantages uh, around it, especially given uh, the environment? And I think now we're even having a little bit more glimpse of that when the streets are empty. We're seeing clear skies in New York City or Los Angeles, like all yep. around the world. So uh, do you speak a little bit to that to sort of like emphasize the importance? Sure. Uh, well, if you look at the spectrum of transportation options that you have, the most efficient beyond your own two legs alone is the bicycle, followed fairly shortly by an e-bike. Um, so as, a, as we look at a future that is going to need a massive reduction in emissions, e-bikes are really kind of perfect for that as our regular bike. Um, challenge with regular bikes, to be perfectly honest, is that most people are lazy and most people are not willing to endure discomfort to um, assuage a theoretical ecological goal. So one of the yeah. things that, that we thought a lot about was that we have to make every aspect of this experience as compelling as possible so that people choose this as a better solution in their life, and then they can pat themselves on the back and tell others how great they are, or themselves how great they are. But the key thing was going to be to create a solution that was fundamentally more appealing and more useful. So bikes are if you look globally, are a super, super proven platform. And in countries where they have a slightly different environments, you know, if you can look at the Netherlands, you know, people learn to ride at age five. They ride until they're 95 or dead, whichever it is. Yeah. Um, and, um, you know, a huge percentage of the country gets around safely and efficiently on bicycles. Um, they also are adopting e-bikes at a furious rate. So... I look at the e-bike actually as an as an accessibility technology in and of itself because 
most, particularly Americans, aren't in terrific physical condition. And because of the sacrifices and compromises that a regular bicycle has to make, the e-bike really has a chance to explode the amount of usership of, of uh, use and ridership because of the way it makes things easier. And it's also uh, been proven to be a uh, health transitional technology. So, you know, one of the things that was interesting in the beginning of this is was seeing the resistance of traditional bike shops to e-bikes, where they kind of perceived it as a form of cheating, right? And, mm. and so you had this kind of cultural clash where, you know, you walk into the e-bike shop and a bunch of guys with big, thick legs, you know, kind of look, look down at you when you want to buy just like a I just want to get around and like carry my stuff, you know, <laughs> you know, they're like, well, you're not racing, you know, no, no, no. Um, so a lot of research has been done on that subject. And actually it's sort of the opposite that uh, people who start riding e-bikes ride twice as far and twice as frequently as people who don't use e-bikes. And for many people who are at health challenges, it becomes a transition technology that gets them mobile because it yeah. eliminates the kind of, the barrier or the step, right? You know, you have the kind of hump that you have to get over to be fit enough and comfy on a bike. The the last yeah. piece of the puzzle, and this is where I think e-bikes have, as of yet, not even begun to to tap into the potential, which is that regular bikes are, are kind of optimized for the pedaling experience. And there's all sorts of things that you, compromises that you make for that. But when you have a little bit of extra power to carry a little bit of extra weight, then you can start putting all the technology into the bike that makes it really consumer friendly. And one of the big overlooked ones, I think, is the comfort and the the sense of perceived safety, particularly on bad roads. Um, hmm. Most people, you know, riding a, a loaded bicycle with a basket of stuff in it over a pothole, um, doesn't take very many of those to kind of make people leery. And it also forces you to look at the road instead of the environment around you, right? You're not right. paying attention to the cars. You're paying attention to what is it that I have to avoid running over and what's my surface. The second thing about that is that when you add a passenger, the passenger, unlike the riders, can't stand up on the pedals. So if there's a bump, they're going to take that pothole in the tush 100%. Yeah. So, <laughs> you know, the, the other big opportunity here for uh, technology is to fix that problem by putting a proper suspension in the bike, like a mm -hmm. car. Um, so our bike, you can ride over a speed bump with a passenger on the back, and it probably won't interrupt their conversation. So we think that that kind of comfort shift and the ability to kind of carry some stuff, basically move it kind of in the car direction where... You can now pick up your friend. You can wear dressy clothes and have your work stuff with you. All of those things mean that it's suddenly a much more useful everyday object than a single rider bicycle, you know, where you wear a backpack and, you know, every pound that you carry makes your life worse, right? Yeah. Whereas, uh, you know, I think the future is going to be, you know, maybe it won't be civilized cycles. Maybe it'll be, you know, other things like this. But electricity has such a uh, – the electric motor platform, um, particularly in light vehicles, is really, really a um, synergistic technology. And I think that, you know, the future is going to look like lots of light electric two-wheeled vehicles um, in every kind of configuration shape imaginable. And, you know, we hope to be a rich part of that ecosystem and help show the way of what's possible. Yeah, and I think, you know, it's so important to – this. Uh, for you know for the onboarding process because 
as you said, like people in Netherlands, they're biking since they're five years old. I know how to use a bike, but I still would not be confident with myself to bike anywhere, knowing that I'm, even though like I'm a relatively fit person, I wouldn't trust myself if I haven't biked in a while, like, oh, would that really be challenging for me? Am I going to be able to carry this stuff? And we're known in New York to be schlepping our stuff all over the city, too, like when we're moving around. And it's probably the same for all, uh, you know, urban environments where people have a lot of things to do outside. So it's really important to allow for that, like, first step for it to be it's to stop being an excuse for people like, Oh, I, right. I don't know how to bike that well, or I, I need to carry a lot of stuff or I need to dress like this, which is not, you know, convenient with biking or I don't trust myself. Like all of those, I think yep. um, it's easy to say, you know, just bike and be environmentally friendly, but, but yeah. you sort of like need to, you know, ease it in yep. and um, eliminate the, you know, physical effort aspect of it a little bit more so that it could be adapted more easily. Like that is, yeah. you know, one of the principles of universal design, right? So you kind of need to be able to provide that access to a wider uh, age group or to people regardless of their like size or ability. So I think it's, it's in that sense, it's just such an important move towards um, sustainability, like uh, enabling that first yeah. step. But also I think like when we're looking into the future, um, with the pandemic, we've experienced something really interesting where uh, New York uh, subways and buses were empty for the longest, which probably didn't happen in a very, very long time. And yeah. now uh, as we start to get out more and go, go and have meetings or like meet people and back to being our social uh, selves, um, a lot of people will still be nervous about going into a very packed subway or a packed bus, probably. Um, and we're assuming that there is going to be a lot more um, bike riding in the city. Um, but at the same time, I know people who do not trust their, themselves in biking and therefore they take an Uber. So I think yep. in the future of like, you know, post-pandemic, People exploring alternative means of commuting because they don't want to be in a packed tight environment. You know, using bicycles or e-bikes is going to be a very, very popular option. And I think in that sense, it also presents a great opportunity for, I mean, you know, in at least we use more public transportation in New York City, but in um, so many other cities, we do not have that in the United States, especially, right? And yeah. it, maybe it's the oil industry lobbying or whatever it is, but we don't have the sustainability measures just because the infrastructure is not there. But as this starts to become more popular in the United States, because people don't want to take the public transportation, it could potentially inspire more and more to switch to this. So that's, yeah. over, that's the silver lining that we see and wanted to uh, get your thoughts on that too. Well, we're actually already seeing that. Um... All of my contacts in the industry are reporting, you know, what was already a hot sales is now kind of exploding. Um, so, you know, there's already a shift for people looking for any way out of, you know, in a confined space type type setup. The second thing is that, you yeah. know, there's a shockingly large number of midsize and smaller American cities that are making deep investments in bicycle infrastructure. Mm. Even though our federal government is 
completely uh, checked out. Um, the, 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 the local and federal, as opposed to local and state level, has been making a lot of changes to both um, enable uh, more cycling and to encourage it. Um, I think already 28 states have adopted the California structure of e-bike laws, which permits this high-speed e-bike, this 28-mile-an-hour class um, 3 e-bike, which is, you know, what ours bike is and, and is sort of what I think is particularly important for suburban use. You know, we're not all living in cities. Some of us live in, in more spread out places. Yeah. Uh, a 28-mile-an-hour bike is what you need to be safe on a normal 25-mile-an-hour suburban road. And, um, you know, this suddenly creates something that when someone's looking at like, oh, I need, a, uh, a, you know, a gallon of milk at the Wawa, do I take the Chevy Suburban or do I take the e-bike? Oh, the e-bike's going to be more fun and I can park it and it's cheaper and, you know, I'll get a little giggle out of it. I'll take the e-bike. So, you know, I think yeah. that, that aspect is there. Um, the other thing I wanted to comment on was, uh, you know, adoption and accessibility and onboarding. Um, you know, we've thought a lot about that in our ergonomics and our step-through, but more broadly, you know, I look at um, – I look at that as a stack, right? Like, so every person has, if you look at something like, I think bike riding is a great example. There's probably a, a list of five or six reasons a person doesn't ride. And each one of them is only a small objection. But all of them added up become like, stop, right? So yeah. it might only be 10, 15% that I'm nervous when I go over a pothole. And I may not even be conscious of that's what, what's going on. It might be 10%, I can't wear the clothes that I like. It could be another 15% of, you know what, I always need to pick up my kid or my friend or my spouse somewhere, or I want to go visit them, and then suddenly I'm stuck with a vehicle and we want to go somewhere together. That doesn't work. You know, another 5% there. And, and so you kind of go through this stack, and suddenly you realize, wait, there's like 60 70% here when you add yeah. them all up. <laughs> <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, and so if you can feel it, sometimes it's interchanging. Like some days it is your clothing. Some days it is a pothole in a certain role. Some days it's something else. Like Right. Some, some days, days it's the laptop that doesn't quite fit in your bag and you have no good yeah. way to carry it on the backpack, you know. And every one of those becomes, you know, that day's excuse not to ride or to find some other way. And so if, you know, this is just sort of a broader design thing, right? Like, if you can address all the small things that add up, you're getting the big thing, right? Like sometimes you can't create the big thing, but if you can create all the small things together, you're creating the big thing, if that makes any sense. Yeah. So. I mean, isn't that like iPhone, basically? That there were so many things about so many different products yeah. that we used and so many uh, stuff that was around like, maybe ease of use, simplicity in technology that we were looking for, yep. uh, not being accessible to elder, like, ages, and, um, you know, not being accessible to maybe people with disabilities or, yep. you know, so many things. And then suddenly the small product came out that was, like, as easy as it could be to use, yep. and then it became a global phenomenon, and now we don't know how to function without it. So, <laughs> right. <laughs> and like, now we're like, how can I implant this in my mind? Right. <laughs> exactly. And like, you know, you knew it was easy when the product came out, and like two weeks later, your grandparents are FaceTiming you. So it's right. it's kind of it's really <laughs> uh, in the end, you know, the technology was there. You know, they there were touch screen for other products. There, I mean, yep. we had. Uh, 
you know, cameras. We had phones like that we actually made phone calls for and we did text like all of that was there but how do you like immerse everything into one and then really uh create something that we didn't even know we needed to begin with but it answered the uh, like all our questions and concerns yeah and how do you make the technology get out of the way right like yeah steve jobs fundamental genius was understanding that users were not technical and they don't care about the technical thing. And, yeah. you know, it's, it's one of the things that's always kind of, you know, cracked me up is, you know, you walk into like, and I'll just use my bike as an example here, but if you walk into a bike shop, you know, and you're like, I'd like to buy, you know, XYZ, and they say, what's your budget? And you say this, that, and this thing is like, oh, do you want the STX or the DRX derailleur, or do you want the, this one here? And they kind of, you know, this one has the, the brakes from this company and the seat from that company. And, and it's always like, it's really weird, right? Like you go to buy yeah, a car. Who cares? And, yeah. Like who cares? Right. You go to buy a car. No one is sitting there saying, Oh, look, the brakes are made by AC Telco and the air conditioner was made by carrier. And like, that's, yeah. that's not how, how like modern mature products are sold. Yeah. You know, people, you know, people buy cars on how it looks, what it does for them and how it makes them feel pretty much those yeah. things within a budget like that's kind of exactly what, so you know i think it's you know one of the things that i think that i respect so much about apple design and steve jobs design and and you know for me the other giant example was the, the first ipod which was you know even oh, more yeah. departure than the iphone was yeah um, but it stripped away all the technology right it just made all of the buttons and the manuals and the thinking go away and you just you played with it and you knew how to use it and it was you know that was the 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 genius of that design so we always try to ask the question how can we make our product like that where no manual you jump on it you use it it's intuitive like you, you know you grew up with it that's our goal have we nailed it well, we'll have to let other people judge, but that's certainly our goal. So, yeah, it's really interesting how it is like reversed. Like when we think of in the context of architecture or like built environments, like when you go to buy a house, right? You you look at the layout, you see if it's getting sunlight, like all the things that will affect your day to day. But no one's really informing you on the materiality, whether it was sustainable whether it was like a fair construction process, whether they use right, natural right. materials, which you should actually know of. Like all of them are actually like more hidden and everything else is like being promoted and like everything is a luxury residence and, yeah. it, you know, to justify a high price, none of the ingredients and the process, like zero transparency about construction and then <laughs> all focus on the end outcome so that we're so uneducated about like – buildings we spend time in we don't know if there were toxic elements we don't know if people died on site like if it was a safe construction we don't know if people were paid like fairly like all of those we have zero idea and we buy into it right away whereas in yours it's a complete reverse where people do not understand or necessarily care about all the technical terms like they're looking at performance and really no one's delivering that and they're they're just saying like this comes from here this is that it's like (laughs) It's like a very weird um, paradox. Yeah. Why oh, I mean, industries where we need more transparency and education, we're totally like, you know, hiding them away. And in some, we're like over bombarding people with some technicalities where that's not what we need. If if only specialists could own homes, you would probably see a market more like the bike market. Right? <laughs> yeah. 
I mean, it's, you know, it, it is, you know, the, the, the thing about this country is that our bicycle model for 50 years has been, oh, that's something I do, either you, something you do as a kid, yeah. something you do for leisure, or it's something you do for athletics. So usually yeah. the model is, I'm going to take my bicycles, I'm going to hang them on the back of my car or truck, I'm going to drive somewhere, I'm going to ride around, put them back to the back of my car or truck and come home, right? Like it's, we don't yeah. have a model in this country for bicycles as transportation. And that's why the bike shops are really catered by and large to the, the performance athletes and the people who, you know, mm. the kind of person who really cares about the details of that stuff because they, you know, they're trying to ring out, you know, one more mile an hour or a few seconds off of a lap or, you know, for the leisure riders, a lot of it's about like, you know, pretending that you're like one of the real athletes, right? <laughs> <laughs> or just being honest and liking like yeah. price point or look or whatever. Yeah, like price point or look or having a nice thing or something like that. But but again, it's still, if you look at the way the bike shops and so forth are structured, they're not pointed at a mainstream consumer who's looking for problem solutions rather than, uh, they tend to cater to people who are looking for some kind of sport or leisure experience. Yeah, yeah. I think that's really fascinating. And I really uh, like that, you know, you are sort of like helping change that communication and just making it a no-brainer product for everyone by just answering all the uh, questions and concerns they have. And as and I have more faith in, you know, uh, our generation may be us, but also like the next generation where like everyone's a little bit more like uh, conscious and want to be more proactive about the environment because we just really treated it badly for so long. So yeah. with that, I think, you know, e-bike, it's not even like it didn't even start. I'm, you know, I always whenever I go to Netherlands, I'm always in fascination on how little children and like elders are all biking in like unison and like yep. it seems like it looks like a perfect like flow of people just and I'm like wow. and and amazingly amazingly their bicycle accident injury rates are a fraction of ours oh my god and they yeah never and wear they're biking so close to one another at a grand speed like it's insane and and they never wear helmets you notice not one of them is wearing a helmet yeah yeah the, the reason for that is that Dutch society is designed to totally separate cars from bikes. And yeah. the vast majority of bike injuries actually come from car. The ones that are bad, most people fall off their bike at some point in their life. That's so kind of normal. Right. But the ones where you get really messed up are going to be the ones that involve car contact. And you right. know, one of the things that I find really heartening about our generation and the one you may be following is that, you know, by and large, there's a tremendous amount of, of support for expanding space available for pedestrians and bicycles and reducing space available for cars. And, yeah. um, you know, I grew up in cars, you know, drinking gasoline, all of that. But the reason <laughs> I started this company was because I knew that that world and that life had to die. Like, as yeah. much as I love it, it must go. We cannot do that anymore. And, um, you know, one other, the other sort of entrepreneurial thing I'll throw in here is, is, Whenever it gets hard to do this business, and anytime you start a business, it's really hard. <laughs> and there's lots of moments where you get kicked in the teeth and, and you need to kind of, you know, reset and restart. The yeah. thing that keeps me going is knowing that I'm, you know, me and my team are at least helping put our shoulders against the karmic wheel 
and moving things in the right direction and, and getting people out of their cars. And, and that's worth it. So I would encourage entrepreneurs when they are building their businesses to think about what is the aspect of your business that is going to get you out of bed in the morning when it's really hard anyway. Yeah. And, and hold on to that and don't lose sight of that because that's probably why you're in, you know, that's why you have a special insight into and a special advantage in what you're doing. Wow. Couldn't agree more. And so, it, it, you know, if you do not think about the world or, you know, our environment or even like community and other people, just, I think, thinking that, you know, our children will hold us accountable in the future and like, <laughs> mom, dad, like, why were you more responsible and now I have to live in this? So I think uh, you're so right that if you pick a field in where you can be proud of your work and at least why you're trying and that could get you motivated at times where it's really, really difficult. I, it couldn't get better than that. Like no work is easy anyway. So that's yeah. Totally true. <laughs> yeah. You, you might as well actually have a reason to do all the suffering that is the work part. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> well, thank you so much, Zach. This was such a treat. Uh, we're, thank you. Uh, we're glad that you joined us and we, Hope we see uh, much, much more of bike and e-bike riding uh, in the very near future very soon. Well, thank you very much. And if I may, uh, a shameless plug that we're about to relaunch our website. So I'd like everyone to come visit our website. Yes. Well, this was yeah. so great. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure. Thank you for listening to our podcast. Tune in next week for a brand new episode. For more details on our guests, follow us on Instagram and Twitter. For more information on our events and podcasts, visit us at what's wrong with .xyz.